the uh, preliminaries have been significantly shortened from my first visits at some places. I don't know, understand quite what the deal is, but it could have to do with longevity. You know, my mother prayed for a preacher before I was ever born. And then after my dad passed away, my mom became a member of the church I was pastoring in Stillwater. My mom had a few questions for me after a while, and she said, why do you preach so long? And I said, well, do I preach too long, Mom? And she said, boy, it sure seems like it sometimes. And I told her, I said, well, I don't even think about it. And she said, I know. And so I, I've tried to work on that. And you can ask my wife. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start. I've got, got to shorten these sermons. I got, she said, sure, sure. But um, honestly, if you've got work to do, you've got to develop the text. You don't just get up and start talking. And so anyway, it just sometimes it takes time. And uh, I noticed that there are people that are sitting at stop lights for hours or standing in line for hours to get a ride or to eat in the restaurant they want to eat at. Don't seem to think about, about it very much. So I've uh, had times where services went long before I preached and I said, now I realize we had a lot of things go on tonight and I know what time it is. I just don't care. So let's open our Bibles. Shall we to the Gospel of John chapter 4, and uh, also if you would open to the 95th Psalm and hold it there, the 95th Psalm, just mark it somehow, and about 845, somewhere in there, we should be turning to the, uh, no, I'm kidding, the 95th Psalm. So if you just mark it where we can all turn there quickly together, when it's time, if everything goes right, then we'll go there together a little bit later on in the 95th Psalm. We're going to begin our reading here in uh, John chapter 4 and verse number 13. I'm sure maybe we have some that are in the room that were not here last night, uh, but we're going to be all four nights, God willing, here in John chapter 4. And we call it Jesus at Work at the Well. And what an amazing, amazing account this is. So let's stand together, shall we? And Read beginning in verse 13. If you need to remain seated for physical reasons, of course, that's fine. And we're going to read, in, beginning in verse 13, down through verse number 29. We'll stop there at verse 29. All right, verse 13. And Jesus answered and said unto her, the woman of Sychar, the Samaritan woman that had come to the well where Jesus waited and rested while the disciples had gone into Sychar to get food. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus said unto her, Go call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that 
sayest thou truly. Jesus is not browbeating the woman, but letting her know you can drink of this water when you're willing to deal with sin. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and the reference would have been to Mount Gerizim, which, though I've not been there, I'm told is in view uh, from where they would have been standing at Jacob's well. Gerizim was the notable mountain, a notable mountain in Samaria. And the woman saith unto him, Sir, let me see, verse uh, 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Gerizim. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, underline this, and now is, when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, the anointed one. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Imagine what that moment must have been like. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou? Or why talkest thou with her? The disciples came back. They saw that this very unusual setting, dynamic, was taking place here where Jesus was talking to a woman at a well alone that was a Samaritan. All of this is very strange to them. And yet none of them said, What seekest thou to the woman? Or why talkest thou with her to Jesus? The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to them, or to the men, Come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? I got goosebumps right now. This is so amazing. So we're going to talk about Jesus at work at the well. And since she brought it up and Jesus addresses it, we want to talk about the matter of true worship. True worship. Father, we pray blessings upon the time together here tonight. We're very thankful for your word and we are thankful for the privilege to assemble together, and I want to thank you for men and women that, like Mary of long ago, have chosen that good part which cannot be taken away. Almost everybody here could have found some reason or other to be at home or to be somewhere else or to give attention to other things, and some of them very worthy, perhaps, 
and yet they have made the choice to give attention to the Word tonight. And so uh, I, I in no wise want to waste anyone's time. And we recognize, O oh God, that when we have put forth our best effort, when I have studied as much as I know to study, when I have committed this to my mind to be able to communicate it as much as I know how, when we've done all of that without the working of your Holy Spirit, uh, the service would be in vain. So we acknowledge our dependence upon you and upon the Holy Ghost who inspired and preserved the words that we have before us. And I pray that you'd work in every heart and life. And even on this Monday night, there's not a way in the world I would have any ability to discern the issues of all the various lives and families and homes and persons that are here tonight. But you are mindful of all of them, and in your infinite power and wisdom, you're able to address every heart, every need, every life, every situation. Please do that. And by the working of your Holy Spirit, accomplish your purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you much. God bless you. you may be seated. <clears throat> I don't often use the term religion, but I'm going to go ahead and use it tonight that religious confusion is really nothing new. But I've thought about it this way. <clears throat> if there was ever a time in history when there was more confusion over matters of religion than there are now, I'm glad I didn't live in that time. And I know that every time technology takes another step, it was true when radio was new, it was true when television was new, it was true when cable television uh, came along, it's true when the internet came along, live streaming came along, and all the technology and the information age. And while there are those that argue, oh, we are so blessed to have all of this, I don't think anybody can prove that we are better spiritually for it. Thank you. I don't think anybody could. And as a matter of fact, I do believe that probably there is more availability to confusion to the massive amount of gullible minds about the matter of religion. There's more opportunity for confusion, perhaps, I can't speak with great authority here, but perhaps than any other time in history. The confusion is amazing. And the reason I mention that is Jesus is talking to a confused woman. And uh, since confusion continues, I'm hoping we can uh, take this passage and be helped and learn from it. And this is a woman that, well, all you got to do is read the account that we read. Uh, comes to Jesus at the well. She comes at the noonday, not when the women would normally go to the well. Uh, she came because of a huge cloud of shame that hung over her head among her people because of her immorality. She had one husband and finally five and, and now living with a man that is not her husband. And even in Samaria, they wanted to have no association with her. And she would come to the well at the noontime, not the time when people would come uh, to the well, uh, especially women by themselves. And there she was. And Jesus sat there and he engaged a conversation with the woman, first asking, give me to drink. 
And she said, this is very rare that a man would ask me, who am a Samaritan, uh, would, and you're a Jewish man, would ask me for water to drink. And the conversation began. And when Jesus, uh, the woman, verse 15 is such a key verse to the thing, where the woman said, give me this water uh, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. When she came to that point, and Jesus said, well, go get your husband. We tried to make the point last night that no one drinks of this water and bypasses the issue of sin. Nobody does. Nobody is going to drink of the living water and bypass the issue of sin. And there are other accounts that we could turn to where Jesus encountered people in the same way. Their circumstances were different. Uh, the way their sinfulness was made manifest was different, but it was the same every time that they were required to deal with the sin issue. And so uh, the issue comes up about her sin and the fact that she, uh, Jesus lets her know that he knows that she has had five husbands and is now living in a very immoral situation with a man that is not her husband. And so what does she do? She wants to talk about worship. And she brings up the subject of worship. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and the Jews say that you're to worship at the mountain, at uh, Mount Zion, or the place of the temple there in Jerusalem. And so she brings up the subject of worship. Now, that's relevant. It's relevant. Uh, there is a contemporary mindset today that says we got to stick with the things that are relevant. Well, let me just tell you, I never stretch one verse. I never go for any effort, Pastor, to say, I've got to somehow make this relevant. God inspired this book until His Son Jesus comes and the consummation of all things. And so that it is relevant is a given. God, the author and preserver, made it so. Amen. So it's, it's relevant. I, I guarantee you it's relevant. And this matter is relevant. Why do I say that it's relevant? Well, because of all the confusion there is about worship. I made mention yesterday morning that there are those that believe they invented praise and worship. And so you have this massive, charismatic, uh, not charismatic, but contemporary movement uh, that believes that you're kind of on the outside looking in if you're not really involved in the new age of uh, praise and worship. And so it's not unusual. I've watched some of this just to, on television just to kind of keep my thumb on the pulse beat of what's going on out here. And so it's nothing unusual for the, for the, uh, the praise team to be up here. And then the man gets up and he said, now let's have, we have it on the screens. Let's all stand and let's join together and worship the Lord this morning. And people are clapping and they're going to stand and worship the Lord. And I'm saying to myself, huh? Stand and worship? We have a problem here right off the bat. Just by definition of the word. You have a real issue and you have a problem. Oh, well, here's the thing. And I've talked to not a few people about this. Uh, that, well, here's the thing. See, to us, pray, uh, worship means this. Oh, so what it means to you is what it is? No, what the Bible says it is, is what it is. And just because you say it's something different than what the Bible says doesn't mean it's so. Well, that's, uh, or that's okay. That's your truth. This is my truth. No, truth is truth. <laughs> you know. And so you, you kind of go, so let's all stand and worship. 
Um, I've heard uh, pastors get up and say, we're going to take the offering today. Don't forget, we worship God with our tithes and our offerings. So let's worship the Lord as we give here together today. And so they pass the offering plate and nobody worships. By definition, nobody worships. Well, you don't know the attitude of my heart. I'm sincere when I put the money in. I'm not saying you're not sincere. But worship means what it means. See. And uh, so, I've, uh, you know, my understanding of worship is this. Somebody else says. And you go on and on and on. In fact, Grandpa, my Grandpa, oh, man, he was a good man. Somebody said, my Grandpa was a wonderful man. He never went to church. But boy, did he believe God on oh my soul. And what he'd do is he'd go out on Sunday and fish, and that's where he worshiped God. So that's what Grandpa told you? Yeah. That doesn't mean he did. I said it doesn't mean he did. Because worship is not, it, it would be sort of like this. Let's say that somebody comes to, uh, to Heritage Baptist Church and stands up here and preaches and says, you know, baptism just really means whatever you want it to mean. You want it to, to be baptized? Well, then do you want water sprinkled on you? Do you want water splashed on you? You want a glass of water poured over your head? How is it that you want it? Just because baptism means whatever you think it means. No, it doesn't. The very definition of the word has to do with immersion. Come on, I'm not talking to ignorant people here tonight. It has to do with immersion. And so if we're going to talk about baptizing, then we're going to talk about not sprinkling, not splashing, not pouring, not some other thing. There has to be immersion. It's got to show something of the burial of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And nobody's at liberty to take that word and make it mean what, it, uh, what they want it to mean. And nobody's at liberty to take the word worship and make it mean what they want it to mean. It has a definition. You can look it up from the Old Testament. You can look it up from the New Testament. You're going to come to the same conclusion that, uh, that uh, the word worship has to do with getting down low. It has to do with bowing. It has to do with kneeling. Excuse me, it did in the Old Testament. It does in the New Testament. And read the book of the Revelation. That's what it's going to mean when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the object of the worship. And we're going to come to that part in this passage tonight as well. And so it has to do with getting low, coming down, getting prostrate, kneeling, bowing. I'm just saying we don't stand and say, let's all stand and worship. No, now you can get down and worship. But I want to be quick to say that not everybody that bows necessarily worships according to what Jesus taught. So I'm just trying to say, I'm not mad at anybody, but I, it, it does fire me up uh, when people try to take the liberties that are not ours to take to try to take something so clear and so very, very significant in the Word of God and try to make it fit where everybody well, kind of has their own idea. And lo and behold, everybody's right. No, they're not. You're going to see that in this passage tonight as well. So he's talking to a confused woman. And uh, it comes down to verse number 20. As Jesus has been dealing with the woman... And talking to her, this Samaritan woman. It might serve us well to remember that this Samaritan woman would have probably had some Jewish blood in her. And uh, mostly, I, 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 maybe this would help a little bit, the formation of the breed, if you want to put it that way, of the Samaritans took about 700 years to come to where they are right now. Approximately 700 years. 
And so we know that by the time uh, that Jesus walked into Samaria, that the race would have been very, very mixed because there would have been those that were half Jew and half Assyrian, half Jew, half Syrian, half Jew, part this, part that. You understand how that works. And so basically, though, it's connected to the Assyrian um, uh, uh, the Assyrian attack upon Israel and the destruction of the nation when God took the northern kingdom out of his sight and they were scattered among the Assyrians and the Assyrians came into the land and then those that mixed with the Jews, that's where the Samaritan breed, if you want to put it that way, that's where it came from. And so understanding that they are surrounded by Jews north of Samaria is Galilee and south of Samaria is Judea. And so they are surrounded by Jews. So they were very familiar with Jewish custom, Jewish life, Jewish teaching, as well as their own mixed up teaching as Samaritans. And so the woman then says to Jesus in verse number 20, when he has confronted her with her sin, and she is astounded by the fact that he so knew her, that in verse number 19, she said, Sir, sir I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now, that being so, look in verse 20. That being so, our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, <clears throat> there are two schools of thought about what the woman was doing by bringing up the matter of worship. Uh, I'll give them to you right quick. Uh, the first school of thought is that the woman, watch, being confronted by her, about her sin, the woman being confronted about her sin, in order to get Jesus off of that, brings up the subject of worship and hopes maybe we can avoid the issue of sin. Now, there are some that believe that's what she was doing. Just, just kind of uh, just, just bring something up that will get off of a very, very uncomfortable subject, and that would be her sin, her morals her failures in marriage, her living with a man that is not her husband. Excuse me, maybe this ought to be said in the 21st century, that no matter how our culture and our society has embraced people living together apart from matrimony, it's still a sin in the eyes of God. See, And I, I know I'm probably preaching to the choir tonight, but probably we better keep saying that because it's amazing to me how many people are willing to walk down an aisle and say, we want to join this church. And you come to find out they ain't never been married. Now, I know that's bad grammar, but did you get it? I mean, here they are coming here blatantly living in fornication and or adultery. And here they are wanting to join a Bible-believing Baptist church. I think we need a little of the dose of the Samaritan person uh, situation here where we kind of confront that issue, don't you? Oh, come and join and we'll work on these things later. That's where a lot of churches are. That's not right. That's not right. And, and so, okay, so let's get back to it. So perhaps... That's why they take so long right there. But anyway, uh, perhaps we should get back to this where the woman is saying, some believe, she, she is saying, let me get you off of that subject and onto something else. Our fathers uh, uh, say, we've always worshiped in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you say that Jerusalem and the Mount Zion is the place to worship. Now, now I've had, if you've done any witnessing, there are people that have done soul winning and witnessing and uh, in, in this room. And if you've done any witnessing at all, you probably had that kind of thing happen where they were trying to get you off. Where you go and you talk to somebody and 
you're telling them why you're there, and then you finally get to the point that you're going to confront them about their sinfulness before God and their need of repentance uh, toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. And so you're working to get, to get that way, and then just out of nowhere, well, what about the heathen in Africa? Now, am I supposed to believe that this person has been carrying this huge burden about the heathen in Africa for a long time? Or would they like to get me off the subject about their personal need of salvation and talk about the trouble that we have trying to reconcile all of this, that if Jesus is the only way, what about places like Africa where there are places where they haven't heard, or if it's not Africa, it's other places of the world. What about that? Now, that's a fair discussion. But that's not what we're talking to you about. That's going to have nothing to do with where you spend eternity. Is everybody with me here? Or they'll come up and say, uh, uh, well, yeah, but, you know, it's always troubling me. Why are there so many religions in the world? And this is the first time they've thought about it in five years. But since you're being confronted, they're being confronted about their soul. Then all of a sudden, what about all the religions that are in the world? And basically that is an effort to get you off of the subject of their personal sin and their need of repentance toward God. I'm, I'm going to say that again. Uh, repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. So let's try to get them off the trail. And there's all kinds of ways. Baptists say this and Methodists say that and Presbyterians say this and Episcopalians say this and others say Catholics say this and that. So they want to talk about all of that. All the differences. Where do all these come from? Well, there's a time to talk about that. But this isn't the time to talk about that. Where are you going to spend eternity? Does everybody understand what I'm saying? And there are those that sincerely believe that the woman was trying to lead Jesus away so that they could avoid the issue of her sin. The second school of thought is she is very sincere and wants understanding. And that's where I am on the subject. I, I am sure she is very sincere. Verse number 15 reeks with sincerity. Would you look at it again? Where she said, you can tell this is getting to her. Uh, you mean there is, a, there is actually a water that can fill the emptiness that one marriage, two marriages, five marriages, a relationship, a part marriage uh, from marriage can't fulfill? Or, or it, there is something that can actually bring satisfaction to my soul. The religion of the Samaritans never brought satisfaction. Her lifestyle never brought satisfaction. And he hears of the possibility for the first time that there is a water to drink that actually satisfies. And I believe she's sincere. According to verse number 15, it, again, it reeks with sincerity and comes down here. And the woman said, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. She knows I'm not just talking to anybody here. I perceive that thou art a prophet. How in the world would this man that she had never laid eyes on know that she had had five husbands and was now living with a man that is not her husband? How in the world would he know if he were not a prophet? And then she goes on and says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now here's the thing. If she's trying to pull a trick to get him, to get him off of the subject of her sin, who would have known that? Who would have known that? It's a fairly simple answer. You can go ahead and answer it right out loud. Who would have known that? Jesus would have known that. Uh, Jesus already proved, like with Nicodemus, he knows how to control a conversation. 
It's not like Jesus is saying, oh no, what do I do now? How do I get her off of this subject? No, 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 no. He knew her. No, go back and read John chapter 2 again. When this woman came, Jesus knew her. He knew what was in her. He needed not that any should testify to her. Master, do you know who you're talking to? He knew full well he was talking to. Come on, we're talking about the Son of God here. And he knew who he was talking to, and he knew everything. And if Jesus uh, believed or knew that she was trying to lead the conversation a different way to avoid the sin, then he would not have engaged seriously with her question and given the answer that he gave. But he did engage in conversation with her and definitely addressed the answer to the question, well, what about this? The Samaritans say you worship in this mountain, and the Jews say that you worship in this mountain uh, that is in Jerusalem. And so Jesus then goes to work in our text to set her straight about worship. Excuse me. What he said, he says. This will set anybody straight on worship. If we'll but pay attention to it. It would set anybody straight on the matter of worship. If they would but pay attention to what he said. All right, now let's see then. Uh, what did he say? Now, here is the woman's concern. Uh, she was a Samaritan. Uh, raised that way. How many generations before? We know not. Uh, the Samaritans had been there approximately 700 years. Excuse me. They were entrenched. Their religion was ingrained in them. No matter how empty it was. I said no matter how vain it was. Uh, no, matter how it, no matter how far removed it was, from producing any kind of uh, peace, any kind of contentment, any kind of satisfaction in life, they were ingrained in it. Just like you could go to places in the world, like where Hindu worship is, where there are what? Over 300 million gods, little g gods, up here only. Over 300 million. Why would people believe that? Did you notice, uh, we haven't heard so much from this dude lately, but remember when all we heard about is the Dalai Lama has come and he's here and he's there and the Dalai Lama is teaching. And you listen to the guy talk and you have no clue in the world what he's talking about. And the second verse, that is, he doesn't either. And, and yet there are people that follow him and believe. And then you have Buddha. I've been in the uh, largest Buddhist uh, temple in uh, Korea, in Seoul, Korea, right there in downtown area. You go in there, and I'm just telling you, you can go in that place, and it reeks of evil, of darkness. It does. It reeks of darkness. Uh, it, it is very similar to some of the Roman Catholic monasteries uh, where there is the worship of Mary and the worship of the saints and where there is such perversion, and people, oh, oh it, it is just incredible. And, it's, and, and yet people are still, still following. There's blindness, there's death, there's nothing there. And that's where the Samaritans were. Though there was nothing, there was no spirit to say to them, this is true, this is right, this is good. I said there was no peace, there was no joy, there was no gladness, there was no security, there's nothing to it. It's vanity. Vanity. If you, if you studied the word idol, you'd find that the word idol has to, uh, a large part of the definition of the word idol has to do with nothingness. Though you may see a statue there 
or you may see a figure there. That's all it is. There's nothing there. There's no witness there. There's nothing there. And, and so the Samaritans, they believed in Gerizim. Um, here's the thing about them. Well, look up in verse number 22. What's this? Now, this is definitely insensitive and not politically correct. But he said it anyway. Some of you aren't having any fun at all tonight. So can, can you look up here just a second? Uh, you might have noticed already reading your Bible, the prophets didn't seem to be very sensitive to the culture, did they? Uh, the political correctness was not really their great concern. Nor was it with John the Baptist. You generation of vipers! <laughs> uh, that is not politically correct. Well, he's a prophet of God. He wasn't trying to be politically correct. He's saying the words God said to say. And neither did Jesus. My Bible reading had me in Matthew chapter 23 uh, this morning. And he took the same words of, uh, of John the Baptist and called those Pharisees a generation of vipers, among other things, including hypocrite about 14 times. I didn't count, but it just seemed like a lot. Okay, so anyway, Jesus said, Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. Who's we? For salvation is of the Jews. Jesus said, you know, the reason, here, here's the issue, lady. Uh, you worship, you know not what. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, um, the Samaritans worshiped, they knew not what. They had no scripture. God had given them no revelation. They had no covenant with God. Does everybody listen to this? They had no oracles. Remember when Paul said, what advantage then hath the Jews? Much in every way. In that they were given the oracles of God. The advantage the Jews had is that where and how they worshiped was in the oracles or in the revelation or in the word of God. And so Jesus said to this woman, you don't know what you worship, but we do know about worship. Now, how, how insensitive of him to actually come out and say, all this time, you've been wrong. Oh, you can't tell anybody they're wrong. Too late. It's exactly what he told them. When you don't know what you worship, you know what the definition, that's the definition of ignorance. They were ignorant. I'm not using it as a word to talk down to anybody. But ignorance is ignorance. If people don't know, then they are ignorant of whatever it is they don't know that could be known. And they didn't know. Well, but they have their own worship, but there's nothing to it. It's dead. It's empty. It's vain. Why wouldn't she come into the well happy? I said, why wouldn't she come into the well singing? Why didn't she come to the well and, uh, and bring a prophet with her to debate Jesus? Because they had nothing from which to debate. I'm just saying. They had nothing like that. They did not have the oracles. They did not have a covenant. They did not have a revelation from God. They did not have prophets that had ever heard from God. They didn't have everything. And the Jews got every, ooh, everything about their worship, including the place, came from the Word and the law of God. What is Jerusalem anyway? God declared it to be the city of God. 
the city of David, the holy city. I mean, that's the revelation of God's own word right there. So did the Jews have any foundation for what they were doing? Where did Mount Zion come from? It's the mountain of God. That's where it came from. Why was that temple there? It was chosen there by God. That's how it came from. So that's why Jesus says to the woman, see, the difference is, lady, you worship, you know not what, but we know what we worship because, watch this, salvation is of the Jews. Now, I, I'm not... Uh, a Greek student at all. And I never took Greek. But I can read uh, from those that do know it. And so what they're saying is if we had the Texas Receptus before us today and we read this, then we would understand that when he says, for salvation is of the Jews, it is like a definite article where he's not just talking about salvation is of the Jews, but the salvation is of the Jews, or the Savior is of the Jews. Now, you don't have any salvation without a Savior. I said, you know, so don't, don't worry that we're mixing things up and speaking against the truth. No, we're absolutely not. You don't have any salvation without a Savior. And we know who the Savior is. Uh, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but, but by me. So we can understand when Jesus said, see, you don't have any of the benefits and the privileges and the advantages that the Jews have because, and that's why you worship, you know not what, but we do have the oracles of God. We do have the covenant with God. We do have the revelation from God. And we are in the city of God and the temple uh, where the ark has been is, uh, is the is the place appointed by God. And the mountain is the place of God. All of this is the revelation of God. That's what he's saying to them. So we know what we worship. And you don't know. <laughs> well, I'm just laughing thinking about how that would fly in the 21st century in the culture in the United States of America that a preacher come along and say, you're wrong, we're right. Or you, oh, oh boy. Somebody says, well, do you believe you're right, Brother Sam? No, I'm just kind of hoping so. So some of you don't like sarcasm, okay, I'll try to Well, of course, if I didn't, I wouldn't stand here and preach and try to spend my whole life doing that. Of course, I th so you think Baptists are right. I bet you think Baptists are right. Well, yes. What am I supposed to say? No, not really. Well, if, if it's not, then let's find what is. See. Okay, so I shouldn't have gone off on all that. Ruined the spirit of the whole thing. Anyway, look down here. He said... Uh, but the hour, now watch in verse number, uh, look down in verse number 24. No, verse 23. Yeah, verse 23. But the hour cometh and now is. Can I have your attention? This appears to be a defining moment right here. No, I, I know that he's beginning his public ministry and everything. But uh, prior to this, uh, you know, it, there hasn't been the openness. The miracle worker, yes, teaching in multitudes and people being affected, yes. But the out-and-out out declaration that he is the Messiah, he is making it known to this woman. And so if this isn't the first time, it's very, very early in the process of making it known, I am the Messiah. In fact, read on. Look at verse 23. The hour cometh and now is. 
when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is introducing to her, what shall we say? Just for simplicity, true worship. She had no clue what it was. But now she is being introduced to the Messiah, and he is introducing to her what true worship is. And he says to her, now watch this, the time now, the hour cometh, and now is when the true worshipers are going to worship the Father, watch this, in spirit and in truth. Okay, excuse me. Every worship apart from what Jesus is teaching will lack spirit and truth. I say, okay, I'm going to run that by again. Every worship other than what Jesus teaches, it doesn't matter if it's the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. It doesn't matter if it's Samaritans. And it doesn't matter, go from there to as far as you want to go. Anything but what Jesus is teaching cannot be true worship. And he said that the true worshipers are going to worship him in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. Now let's talk about that for just a moment. What does it mean to worship him in spirit? Um, back in uh, 1993, I did about a 10-part series on Sunday morning at Southwest Baptist Church on the matter of worship. And um, so I was advocating and we did this, and still do it at times at Southwest Baptist Church. We, we, we did this where we would have a time in the morning service where we would actually ask the people to bow where they were, and while music is playing softly, having read the Scripture, and come before God, and let's take time to worship Him. And so, uh, let's say, out of, out of our Sunday morning congregation, I'm going to say probably 80% of the people in the, 75 to 80% of the people in the room would leave their most of them turn right where they were and bow there and, and spend a time of worship, about 80%. Now, of the 80% that did that, what percentage of them actually worshiped God? I don't know. Well, you, you, you said 80% of them got down there. I know. But you worship Him in spirit and in truth. And, and just because a person kneels doesn't mean they worship. Well, anyway, in the process of teaching that, we had a couple leave the church, and uh, the man called and told me we're, we've been, they were members there long before I ever got there, and they said, we're leaving Southwest Baptist Church, and he was trying to explain why, and he wasn't doing enough good enough job, so his wife took the phone, and she let me have it. And so she accused me of trying to make Muslims out of the members of Southwest Baptist Church. And I said, what on earth are you talking about? Do you, well, did you ever watch? Because this is, uh, you know, uh, there was a war with Iraq going on. Islam was in the news and all of this kind of thing. And so she said, have you ever watched them? They show places where at their mosque all those men are kneeling and you're trying to make, make us do that. I said, lady, I didn't invent the word worship. I'm not the one that determines what worship means. Neither am I saying they're worshiping God. You know what the Muslims worship? Oh, no, they're praying to Muhammad, who's dead and in hell. Yeah. And, and, and so, but, so, but they're down there worshiping. 
You're trying to get us to do what the Muslims do. I'm trying to get us to do what the Bible says to do. To worship in spirit and in truth. Now, from spirit means not a formal act of physically bowing. Though physical posture is included in the definition. You can fulfill the part of the physical posture and your heart be in the Bahamas. I don't like the Bahamas. Okay, Siberia. Wherever. Just because somebody does the physical posture part doesn't mean they are worshiping, that he is to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. But if our spirit, our heart, our seat of emotion, our innermost being, the control center of our life, but if our spirit is so affected as it's supposed to be affected by God, bowing is not going to be a problem. Amen. That's a fact. And truth. Truth. There's no truth apart from Jesus Christ. He is the truth. Uh, listen to his words. This is either true or he's the biggest farce that ever walked on the face of this earth. I am the way. Apart from me, there is no other way. I am the truth. Anything contrary to me cannot be true. And I am the life. Apart from me, there is no life. Now, that's what Jesus said blatantly. Well, uh, you know, you've heard it. I, I think Jesus was a good man, a good teacher, but I definitely don't think he was God made manifest in the place. And I said, well, if he's not what he said he was, he's a liar and a fake and a phony. Oh, I would never say that about Jesus. You just did. And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And if you're going to worship God, then he can only be worshiped. How did Jesus say? In spirit and in truth. That's why Jesus says to her, I'm not going to go back up there and read it, but that's why Jesus said to her, the time has come that it doesn't matter if it's Gerizim or Jerusalem. At this point, because Jesus is the focal point, because Jesus is the way, and because Jesus is the truth, worship has to do with your relationship and devotion to Him, not a place. So that's why he said, anymore, Gerizim is as good as Jerusalem, or Jerusalem's as good as Gerizim. Take your pick, it really doesn't matter, because it's not about a place now, it's about a person. Don't forget what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sin. Somebody said, that's a big word. I bet you don't even know. You're a farm boy. You don't even know what that word means. I sure do. Yep, made it my business to know. You know where the propitiation once was? In the temple. In the Holy of Holies. At the place of the ark where the priest would sprinkle it on the Day of Atonement with blood and God would visit and wipe away, atone their sins and wipe them away. And it's called the place of propitiation, the point or the place at which God dealt with the sins of his people.
Is everybody with me here? But that's not the case anymore. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Amen. Now, these things we write unto you, beloved, that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of what? The whole world. So now Gerizim doesn't matter, and the Mount Zion doesn't matter. What matters? Jesus. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff, man. I could enjoy this all by myself. Sometimes I feel like I am. Yep. And that's what Jesus is saying to them, uh, to this woman. And um, so he says, verse 24, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him. And the woman saith unto him, uh, I mean, she's under conviction. I mean, she's getting it. And God's got a hold of her heart by the Holy Ghost. Jesus' words are reaching her. And the woman saith unto him, uh, I know that Messiah is... I, I, I'm talking nervous because she was. Uh, I, I know that Messiah is cometh. Which is kind... I know. I know enough about the Jews' religion that they are anticipating the coming of their Messiah. Some of them think His coming is very soon. I know the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, the Anointed One. And one of the things I know is, when He comes, He will tell us all things. It's, if you read between the lines, you know what you can read? It seems like you know all things. <laughs> okay, you didn't get it. Let's go back and try it again. Okay, uh, I know that Messiah's cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. You know what you can read between the lines? She is actually saying, Oh, I believe I've come to grips with the fact that this is the Messiah, because as sure as I'm standing here, you know everything. You not only know about my life, you know about all the Samaritans. You not only know about them, you know about the people of the whole world. You are the Messiah. You are the Anointed One. And Jesus confirms it. Hallelujah. In verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am He. Wow. And she believes. She received it. Go back to verse 23. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Did you ever stop and think about that line? The Father seeketh such to worship Him. Now, see, you, you know, um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, one can preach and another preacher can judge. So I'm interested in what you think about this. Um, the Father seeketh such. Is, is it sad or not that the Creator God must seek worshipers? That's sad, isn't it? The, the Creator of everything. And he's made himself known. He made himself known in creation. Read Psalm 19. Or is it 18? You know, I see how you're looking at me. You're the preacher you should know. I know, but you can look that one up yourself. 18 or 19. God's manifest himself in creation. He has. He's manifested himself in his word. He manifested himself in the person of his son. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. 
and the Word was made place, and He dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory is the only begotten of the Father. God made flesh. And all of that, and I wish that was just a thing of the past and in those days, but I can tell you right now, He's still seeking worshipers. And in a way, to me, it's sad that the character of God, the God of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and willingness to forgive must seek worshipers. I say it this way, preacher. It's pathetic that he must seek worshipers. It's wonderful that he does. It's wonderful that he does. Let me explain what I mean by that. Do you know why that woman was at the well that day? Well, sure, to get water. Nope. Turns out that isn't why. God was seeking her. Somebody help me now. God was seeking that woman. Jesus didn't just happen there and say, well, who could have guessed this? No, sir. He was on divine appointment. He, this is why he must needs go through Samaria right here. God is seeking the sinners. It's really interesting, not only what we're going to see in the in next couple of services in John chapter 4, but if you go to the book of Acts and you're going to see the Samaritan revival that took place there under the preaching of Philip. It's not done here. It's marvelous and wonderful here. And, and so... And so this woman is, has come to Jesus and he is, he, he is there because he sought her. And, and you would think Nicodemus asked for a visit with Jesus. But I am under this strong persuasion because of what the Word of God says about his knowledge of all men that Nicodemus wasn't there because he had some kind of an unexplainable uh, thirst uh, to talk to this teacher and this preacher and this miracle worker that God is at work in Nicodemus' life. God's seeking. Do you remember when you got saved? You didn't get saved, you, you didn't get saved because some spark of goodness got fanned in you and you went out found, finding God. He was seeking you the whole time. You were a lost sheep. He's the great shepherd. And he was seeking you. And Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. I said, it is sad that he must seek those to worship him. But what gets me, my friend, is this. I can understand the Samaritans, the pagans, the idolaters, the Hindus, the Buddhists, Roman Catholicism steeped in pagan idolatry. I, I can understand that. But I think if you'll read the book of the Revelation and see the fact that he walks among his churches, the most grievous thing is that he must seek worshipers among his own people. To worship him in spirit and in truth. Not because it's a religious duty. Oh, I've got oh, just a minute here. I've got to do this every day. Check my phone here. Yep. Okay. Lord, oh, hold on. iPhone, my goodness sakes. Lord, and then, and worship God in spirit with heart 
with passion. Go to Psalm 95. If you would, please. I don't know if we're through in John 4 or not. We'll see how this goes, and we're going to wrap it up. But if, would you look in Psalm 95? You see, you and I are concerned that the unsaved get saved and learn what worship is. But on this Monday night, I think as Jesus walks among the seven candlesticks, as he walks among his churches and he knows them, I said, he knows us. I said, Jesus knows this. He knows this church. Yeah, it's his candlestick. The, the overseer, the messenger is in his right hand. That would be the pastor, the overseer of the flock. And he walks among the churches. And somehow this grieves my soul and it grieves me in my own life when I am not where I'm supposed to be in this matter that such a Savior and such a God must seek his own people to worship him. Look at Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us become, uh, come before him with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God. Somebody ought to say amen right there. And a great king above all little g gods, rulers, rulers of men that want to play God. He's a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Can I have your attention up here? I told you he made himself known in creation. And that's what he's talking about here. The greatness of God. That's him. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Oh, Lord, help us to never come to the place where singing praises to him is just a ritual, just a ceremony that our heart is way off yonder when it's time to sing praises to the name of the great God and our King and Savior. Yeah. Well, he's the creator God, verse 3 through 5. Oh, come. Look at it. Oh, come. We understand who he is? Yes, he's our savior. He's the rock of our salvation. Hey, somebody, somebody said, I just don't believe that you can uh, uh, have eternal uh, salvation or that once saved, always saved or eternal security or whatever term you want to. I just don't think that is even possible. I wouldn't either if not for the rock of our salvation. My salvation is secured in Him, not my performance. He's the rock of our salvation. Mm. Oh, come, let us worship Him and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Can I have your attention? I'm sure that doesn't mean what it says. <laughs> it surely doesn't mean, you know, like, bow down. It surely doesn't mean, like, kneel. It surely doesn't mean, like, bow and 
prostrate oneself down. It certainly mean, doesn't mean when it's said that they put their faces to the ground, that they actually put their, surely it doesn't mean they put their faces to the ground and worship God. Surely, surely it doesn't have anything to do with a physical posture. Surely it does. Surely it does. We're going to baptize. Take six or nine people up there in the deal. Somebody stands out here and says, I baptize you. I baptize you. And they walk out and we say, oh. Nobody's going to be clamping about that. Why wouldn't you be clamping about that? Because they weren't baptized. Somebody help me now. Did you go to church today? Yep. Did you worship? Oh, yes. Course. Went to the worship service. What are you talking about? At what part of the service did you actually kneel and bow down? Oh, well, uh, in my heart I was. How do we justify that? If you took the definition to pagans and heathen, put them behind a one-way glass all around the auditorium, had them watch a typical Baptist church service, and we have their, our schedule in their hand, and they read that now, I mean, they, don't know, they know nothing about the church. They know nothing about services. They know nothing about the Bible. They don't know God. They don't know Jesus. They don't know a thing. But they see that we're in the worship service. Here's the definition of worship. They look at the definition of worship. They watch the service. When it's over, I go and ask them, well, how'd you enjoy the worship service? Uh, uh, well, did you see the people worshiping? Well, there were two people that went down after the preacher got up there and did whatever he did. But it didn't look like, let's see, let me look at that definition again. It didn't look like they worshiped. You know why it didn't look like they worshiped? They didn't. Well, I, I think you're taking it too far there, Brother Davison. Yeah, you're probably okay with, I baptize you. But you're not okay with that, are you? Then why do we make up our own definition of what worship is? I wonder why there's so little willingness to worship. When do you think it'd be a good time to worship? Well, let me just throw out a possibility since you don't feel like answering out loud. It seems to me like a good time to worship would be when you know God's spoken to you. When you, know, when you have known something of His presence, that would be a good time to bow before Him wouldn't it? That would be a good time. I wonder why it is there was a day when so many people were moved by the preaching of God's Word. Maybe it's better preaching in another day. But why so many people were moved by the preaching of the Word to respond to an invitation and kneel down? Not that everybody was getting a revival. Not that everybody was uh, had a particular sin to confess. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I, but I just wonder.
oh, God meets with us and he stirs our heart. I wonder what it is that keeps people from just at least turning around where they are and getting down and saying, thank you, God, for speaking to my dry and thirsty soul. This was needed in my life and I want to praise you and thank you for it. And I bow down to acknowledge your goodness and your worthiness, oh God. I bow down to worship you. You are worthy. I wonder why there's so little of that. I don't think we need to wonder. Keep reading Psalm 95. This is so strange. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God. So are you talking about me bowing down and worshiping God? He's your God. He's God. The high and lofty one. He inhabits eternity. His glory is above the heavens. His name is holy other than all of his creation. For he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture. He has made us his own. We are the sheep of his hand. We are under his care. And then just out of nowhere... Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, saw my work. Forty years long, God says, was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart and they have not known my ways unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Ladies and gentlemen, would you answer this question to me? Why did God go to talking about the hardness of heart when he's talking about the matter of coming before him and worshiping him? Why do you think he did that? It's because the reason his people had not worshiped him and done what they should have done before God in that wilderness is because of the hardness of their own heart and they tempted God saying, you do things our way and we're with you. But he didn't do things their way. He did things his way. And they provoked him. How did they provoke him? Because when he spoke, they didn't believe him. And when he told them to move, they were stubborn and rebellious against his word. And when he gave them Moses, they said Moses was the problem. And we'd like to impeach him and find us another leader because of the hardness of their heart. And God said, they refused to know me. They refused to know my ways. And therefore, he said, I have sworn my wrath, my displeasure with them, that they should not enter into my rest. And a whole generation of provocators and tempters and unbelievers had no rest in that wilderness wandering and died before they could enter into the land of rest. Now, I wonder why that's right there with let us kneel and bow down. Let us worship the Lord, for He is our God. We're the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. I wonder why He goes right there. Why does He go right from that? To today, if you hear His voice, don't you harden your heart. In relation to what? In relation to humility before God. In relation to humility before God. 
I, mean, I don't know, Pastor. I mean, come on, I sat in the pastor's chair for 36 years. Uh, I don't know, Pastor. I mean, I'm coming to church. I pay my tithe. I don't know. There's just, I don't know. There's just something missing. I, I don't know. I just don't, I mean, I'm trying, but, and my spiritual life is kind of on and off again. I, sometimes I'm frustrated. Sometimes I get frustrated at church life. Sometimes I'm frustrated at you. It seems like you preach on things that, it, well, it seems like you're preaching to me. It seems like you're singling me out. Well, of course, if there's hundreds of people there, it's not unusual to single out one person, preach to. <laughs> oh, I forgot the sarcasm. We weren't going to do any more of that. No, uh, but and I just I don't know. I don't know what's wrong. Well, I wonder why it is you 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 can't enter into. Let's see, how shall we say it? Rest, contentment, joy, fulfillment. I wonder why. Let's, let's not try to lay this on God. He's not the problem. I wonder if there's just an unwillingness to walk humbly before Him. I wonder if there's an unwillingness when you know God is real and God blesses you and God speaks to you and God addresses some need in your heart. And no, I'm not going to walk down an aisle and kneel. Okay, then kneel where you are. I don't, none of us have any authority to insist that everybody come to the altar. I hauled off to preach a whole sermon on the altar. I was going to go, I'll get everybody down here. I'll preach on the altar. Come to find out and studying it out in the Word of God, I don't have any authority to ask anybody to come to an <clears throat> altar or steps or a bench. I don't have any authority. I can't demand anybody do that. I don't have any authority. For I'm not going to quit giving invitation. Never did quit giving invitation. I believe in invitations. God speaks to us, and we know He has. There are some of you that wouldn't treat your friends in the texting world like you treat God when He speaks to you, and you'll get to it later, and another Sunday passes, and another Sunday passes, and you never answered Him. And when we know that our God is so gracious, I mean, he's so high above his creation, he humbles himself to even behold it. And if he is so gracious to single out a sinner like me and speak to my heart, what kind of a hard heart do I possess if I am too, 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 oh, I don't want to use the word proud. You got to. Too proud to get down on my face and acknowledge his goodness and that he spoke to my heart and worship him like he ought to be worshiped. What kind of a hard, I'm not the one that made up this hardness of heart business. It's right there in the context of worship, isn't it? We are talking about true worship, aren't we? I don't know. I go to church, but I don't always get a lot out of it. It could be it's disorganized. It could be you're in a bunch of hypocrites. It could be that the preaching stinks. It could be uh, you don't like everybody there. It could be a lot of people's fault. Or it could be you. It could be you. It could be that God was so gracious as to speak to your heart, and he pretty much got this. And it could be another verse of invitation was given, and you could have knelt before God, and dealt with what he spoke to you about 
and worshiped him in spirit and in truth. Give him your heart. Give him your affection. Give him your devotion. And give him his worthiness. And respond to him that way. It's real. I'm going to close with this. I've been on this. In fact, I'm working on a sermon series called When They Worshipped. And it shows what happened, why people worshipped, and not, not what, when they worshipped, but why they worshipped. Anyway, but so I've been working on that. And in my Bible reading, I was in Psalm 46. And oh, man, that ought to be preached. And I need to work on that, too. But it comes down at the end. It says, be still, know that I'm God. So when I'm at home or if I'm in the hotel room, but I have my own worship time. And I like it best at home and in my office there that I have. And one day, I mean, I was just really meditating and thinking on these things, and the Word had really spoken to my heart. And I, I got down, and I'm, I'm only telling you this. If you don't, if you don't appreciate this, I'm sorry. I, I'm not trying to make it about me. I'm, I'm really not. But I remember bowing down to worship the Lord, and I just finished, Be still and know that I'm God. And so be still doesn't mean shut out all the physical noise necessarily around you. We've got to still our mind, don't we? Come on. You, you know what I mean. Our mind's going here and there. Oh, I hate that. Be still. Shut everything else out. Shut it down. And know that I'm God. And I was taking that serious that day. And Pastor, I got down there and I had my face down. And I got still, and I thought, I am one of 330 million Americans in the United States. I am in Oklahoma City. I'm in this retirement village where my wife and I moved to a couple of years ago in this little house. I'm in my office on Pecos Drive in Oklahoma. There's seven billion people in the world. God inhabits eternity, and his glory is above the heavens, and he dwells in the high and holy place. And I am here thinking I can meet with him? And in the stillness of those thoughts, I just about lost it because I knew he was here. I knew it. No, I'm not telling you anything weird. I didn't feel any, nothing like that happen. My tongue wasn't flopping around, saying things that nobody would ever understand. I didn't hear voices. He said, be still and know that I'm God. And you know what I'm convinced of? He wants us to know him. He wants us to know he's here. He wants us to know his presence. He wants us to give him his, our heart. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. I believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. I know he's the one and only Son of God and the Savior of the whole world. You know that with such conviction, and you are too proud to bow down and worship him? 
at home or at church or anywhere? I just don't think a physical posture makes a difference at all. That's what you think. I suppose you don't think the application of water matters a bit to God. Well, it must. I said it must. Amen. I guarantee the word worship means what it means. And often, most often, it's not a lack of understanding. It's an unwillingness. Let's not play games, friend. It's pride. P-R-I-D-E. It's haughtiness. It's a sense of self-sufficiency. It's a sense of I am okay the way I am. And when God, who is God, has made his presence known to you, I'm, I'm telling you right now, you know, you know he deserves that you get low. And God says, I resist the proud. That's why they don't have rest. But I give grace to the humble, those that will humble themselves before me. Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts. Oh, God, should your people read the Bible at a grade school level, we would come to the conclusion that you are God to be worshipped. We'd have to come to that conclusion. It's not on every page of the Bible, but it's from Genesis through the Revelation that you are to be worshipped. I'm asking, oh God, that your Holy Spirit would work, not just for this service, not just for now. The Father seeketh those that would worship him. It's so sad that you must. It's so wonderful that you do. Oh, God, you seek. You seek for those who will humble themselves and give acknowledgement to your highness, your loftiness, your authority, and all of your attributes, oh, God, who you are and what you've revealed yourself to be. Oh, God, you are worthy of our worship. Work in our hearts. May we not have hardness of heart. May we not be those that provoke you because of our lack of humility before you. Use this invitation for your glory. Save any among us that need to be saved. Work in the hearts of your own people in a mighty way. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's have a verse of invitation. If you just go right ahead, if you want to stand, stand. If you don't want to stand, however you feel like, however you feel like would be a proper response to God speaking to your heart.